session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwin. I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Before I get started, something I'll announce several times just... Um, because of how significant it is. Today is February 10th, and so tomorrow, February 11th, there are protests all over the world. So I know we're very fortunate here at Radio Hamra to have people listening all over the world. Please check your local information wherever you can to see the nearest protest to you here in Los Angeles tomorrow, Saturday, February 11th at 12 noon, starting at City Hall, and the address is 200 North Spring Street. Um, please be there. Get there early. Parking things will probably be crazy. I hope it is crazy that there's going to be so many of us there. And from what I'm hearing, a lot of people are intending to be there and make sure you are there and your voice is also heard. So tomorrow, Saturday, February 11th, 12 noon here in Los Angeles. But I've seen some uh, posts for protests around the world. So I hope you will find the one closest to you. And, and join and make sure your voice is heard. So I hope to see you there in Los Angeles for those of you in the area. Everyone else, hope to see your posts of all the gatherings around the world. Um, getting into uh, the books of the week. Uh, this week's book is The Little Book of Luca by Mike Viking. Um, Luca is a, a Danish word that tr- translates to something like happiness. Um, or related to happiness. Uh, you might have remembered the different book by the same author called The Little Book of Hygge, which is a different Danish concept. Um, but I'm looking forward to reading this book by Mike Viking, who is the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen, and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today is The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. The Creative Act, A Way of Being. And Rick Rubin is a um, very well-known music producer who has worked with many, many artists across lots of genres from um, rock and roll, hip-hop, and everywhere in between. And uh, I actually saw a, a quick portion of an interview with him. It was interesting. He said um, he doesn't play any instruments and he really doesn't even know how to um, use a soundboard and things like that here. Farhuda is with me in the studio and she is very skilled on the board here. Um, but he, as a music producer, actually doesn't know how to work the equipment really or do anything like that. And he was asked, what does he do really? Or why are they paying him, these musicians? And it's that he, he trusts his taste and they trust his taste to help them find what's what's good and what's not good or what's really tapping into this creative act and this way of being an artist he helps them find that voice and to get it out and I've read several books just in the last few years about creativity and what it means and it's you know kind of this mystical at times type of a thing that people talk about trying to 
access something and is that something within you or are you tapping into something outside um, rick rubin talks about the source with a capital s and that's kind of like this thing this um place where the art or the magic happens and in a way he sees it outside but i think these things it's always um a way of conceptualizing things what's outside what's inside is it within you and your unconscious or is it something you have to tap into out of you or is it something that you have to tap into within yourself that we all have and we have to try to reach into um but it, the book is it, it's really written in this nice way of these short chapters on an very different topics. I think there's something like 78 different topics, all re- related to creativity. And when we think of creativity, most people, even myself, we tend to think of, okay, that means an artist, and an artist means someone who sings or paints or acts or writes or does something that we consider art in, in the forms of art, as in art history, or we might study it. But Really, I think, and I think this theme is in the book, although it does focus on creating in the, the more artistic spheres, but life itself can be part of this process, that life is art in the sense that the more authentically we live ourselves and express ourselves, we can live a life where art is in how we interact with one another. The more real we are and the more connected we are to what's within us, that itself can be art. So I think creativity is not limited at all, and being artistic in this way is not at all limited to the ways we think, well, either I'm an artist or I'm not, and if I'm not, then these things don't apply to me. But I don't think that's true at all. In all our actions, we can be more connected, more authentic, more real, connected to something deeper within us than we might realize. And even um, I've talked about this because so many people have used their creativity to, let's say, further the movement with what's happening in Iran. Of course, we see some huge examples like Shervin, Shervin Hajipur winning the, the Grammy. Of course, that's a big, big, huge, monumental type of artistic moment. And his creativity really... Uh, was was quite incredible in making a huge impact and continues to make a huge impact. Most of us won't make an impact that large, but we can find creative ways to make a difference, to use our unique voice, our unique skills, whatever that is, to find a way to help to do something, to make something happen. And we tend to think we're so limited in what we can do, but all of us have more to offer than we can often realize more to contribute and to give and so we can tap into this creative part of ourselves which allows us to explore to play to find new ways to even be ourselves to express ourselves in different ways and so um, this book shares some of those types of thoughts of things we can do it also talks about for example making mistakes or the imperfections that sometimes makes art beautiful or makes it feel more human Um, I, I, I like this one line Failure is the information you need to get to where you're going. And so we tend to think of failure as a mistake or failure as a bad thing, something to avoid. But if we look at it as information that is needed to get to where we're going, it's a different feeling and also is a lot less scary, that we won't be as afraid to fail or that if we try something, it can fail. We should be taking risks and that's definitely a theme in the book as well that if you don't take risks you really can't create great art because you have to try new things creativity is really 
bringing in, there's nothing new in the world, but we can bring new things together or bring things together in a new way. Even that song I mentioned by Shervin, he used the words of people who were expressing things they wished for or longed for in Iran. And he put them to music quite beautifully, but he was bringing together certain things to make something beautiful. And that's what made it what it was. And a lot of art is that, and he shares different artists who copied from each other, learned from each other. And even when we say copied, what does that mean? Really, all art is inspired by previous art. We're always in a certain context that allows for us to create something which is based on what's come before us. Um, I, I resonated with a few parts of the book quite closely. In particular, he was talking about how artists and creative types, the ones who are accessing that part of themselves even more regularly, they tend to be very sensitive people. Um, and that's something that I've embraced and learned more about myself. Uh, Elaine Aaron's book, the, the Highly Sensitive Person, for me was actually meaningful in that way of seeing that in myself more, that the sensitivity, or we hear that word sensitive, we tend to think of it as a purely negative thing. Oh, you're too sensitive and that's bad. Sensitive is the opposite of being strong. When that's not true, being sensitive allows for you to access certain things, to be aware of certain things that someone who is less sensitive would not be able to access and be aware of. And so he said, the, here he writes, the sensitivity that allows them, talking about the creative people, to make the art is the same vulnerability that makes them more tender to being judged. So the sensitivity that allows them to make the art is the same vulnerability that makes them more tender to being judged. And I thought that was quite uh, poignant and I think very accurate that people who create great art tend to be very sensitive in touch with certain things and feeling things quite strongly. But then, of course, that also means they're going to be more sensitive to the judgment, the criticism, things they might face when they're expressing their art as well. And you do see that. Um, he also talked about in this same section, there are singers considered among the best in the world who can't bring themselves to listen to their own voice. So there are singers considered among the best in the world who can't bring themselves to listen to their own voice. And so I can share this about myself that I'm not saying I'm, I'm one of the greatest singers in the world or the greatest anything in the world, but I have a hard time listening to my own shows. So I'm talking to you right now, but I likely will never listen to this myself. I've always had a hard time listening um, to my own shows. And even if I felt like I did well when I did the show, afterwards, I almost never want to hear it myself. And I think there's something you can learn from listening to yourself and seeing that, but it's something I, I've, I've had a challenge with. So when I read this, I actually felt myself tearing up. I felt seen in a way that I could connect to that feeling and that experience. And I think many people can. Uh, in general, many people actually don't like to hear their own voices. Um, if they hear it on a voicemail or in a video, many people don't like the sound of their own voice or it sounds a certain way, or maybe it's different from what they would want it to sound like. Um, but here, yeah, about your own art or hearing yourself, seeing yourself. I've also heard of some actors that can never watch themselves um, afterwards. And again, it's interesting because they obviously believe in themselves enough to do it or they might feel good about the work that they do. Um, but at the same time, something about seeing themselves, it's hard to turn off that critical or judgmental side or something is preventing them from being able to, to do that. So that was interesting for me. It's something I uh, connected to, resonated with. Um, also a few... 
you know, interesting experiences I had while reading the book. Um, one part was about a, a chapter or section was about listening. And it was about, of course, listening, not just in the sense of when you're talking to someone and listening, but listening as in taking in information and about the world, whatever that might be. And we can only do that if we're present. And it was this kind of meta moment that I was reading this section on listening and realizing I was not paying close attention at all. I was really zoned out. And so it made me uh, kind of laugh. And I went back and actually read the, the, the section again, because I realized I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't actually listening to the part on listening. Um, another one that was uh, quite funny for me, and I'll, I'll share it, this is that I was reading the part on imperfections and how sometimes the the imperfections are actually quite good. He, he had like this one line, it's something like, um, when the work has five mistakes, it might not be finished. When the work has eight mistakes, it might be finished, which sounds kind of strange. And the numbers are not important, but it's to say that sometimes the imperfections add something or to try to make it quote unquote perfect actually can make it worse or make it less uh, connective or connecting for people so that they, they feel something. So I was reading this part on imperfections and I had the book in my hand and I looked at my arm and I saw... Um, with age, you start to notice changes in your body. I saw a white hair on my arm, and it was one of the first ones I'd ever seen. And I realized I started to pick at that white hair, seemingly trying to get rid of this imperfection on myself as I was reading the, the section on how important imperfections are and how we shouldn't think of them as such a bad thing. So I thought that was kind of a funny moment for myself as I read this book. But I, I did enjoy this book. I, I think Rick Rubin is proven himself in his work and it's interesting as I said to start this segment what he does it's not we say he's a good blank as far as like a good guitarist or a good singer but he's in music and he's produced great music by helping artists connect to themselves more deeply because great art one of the things that we're doing is we're finding something within us and then we have to translate it into something some medium so whether it's singing or the words or all of it together, to then make people feel something. Really, you don't know what they're going to feel, but that's what ends up happening. Great art makes us feel great things and deep things. But we, of course, have to be connected to that feeling within ourselves to then tap into it and, and go through that process. So he also shares things he's done where he's helped artists unblock, and he gives some of those things that when they're feeling stuck, I actually think... Um, in the song Chop Suey by System of a Down, I think he produced that song, and the singer Serge was stuck on lyrics and what to, to pick, and he told him, just go find a book and find a random word, open the page, and just whatever pops out, and that ended up inspiring some of the lyrics in the song, or one aspect of the lyrics of the song. So um, he gives some tangible techniques of things you can do, but he does share a lot more about the the spirit of it. I mean, the title of the book is The Creative Act, A Way of Being. So more about how you tap into this part of yourself. Um, a lot of creativity, what we notice also is that we have to, in the initial stages, turn off our more critical and judgmental side, which for many of us can be very difficult to do. Is this good or bad? Should I do this or not? Uh, is this good art, bad art? What am I doing here? And that all interferes and gets in the way of the creative process, which needs for you to just let things happen. In some ways, it's more of your unconscious at work rather than your conscious. This is why people can 
often have very good creative ideas when they're doing something else. Like let's say he talks about driving or in the shower because you're kind of occupied enough where then the rest of your brain can do some things. Or upon waking or sleeping or in dreams, people will often have some creative insights when that judgmental part might be off and it's more of the, the creative or the um, associative side of us can, can do its work. And then afterwards, you might need to use a critical thinking in parts of curating and creating the final product. But in those initial, initial stages, we have to allow for that space to play, to just let things happen, which again goes back to failure and mistake. Most of the things you'll come up with or will come to mind won't be good. You have to allow for that space to happen, for the magic to happen, for something special to come out. So yeah, I really enjoyed this book. And I, I think if you're Again, don't have to be an artist per se as far as a profession or career, but just looking at that creative side that we each have, I think it's a great book to tap into that more. Again, that is The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back again tomorrow, February 11th. Hope to see you at the protests here in Los Angeles, 12 noon at 200 Spring Street. Um, in downtown and around the world please find the one closest to you and be there and related to that today on on february 10th there was a very meaningful and important event that took place at georgetown university and the group is calling themselves the future of iran's democracy movement includes several prominent iranians who have come together and they said they want to release what they're calling a solidarity charter this month and it's very clear that their goal and their aim well the main goal is to remove the islamic republic from power in iran and to get there we need to be unified and they are coming together for all of us to come together to be unified in this cause and i hope this is a a great step and a big step forward to solidifying the movement that has gained so much force and people are so energized and mobilized, but to galvanize it into a focused point because we will need some level of leadership or um, organization to get to where we want to get to. So this is great. and And I must speak frankly that I have seen some reports about it, but because I was working during the day, I didn't get to see the event itself, but definitely um, look forward to going back and watching what everyone had to say. Um, But from what I read, it was very clear that the theme was we are against the Islamic Republic and want to remove the Islamic Republic from power completely, and we are all united together, that we are not Um, separate, that we are not against each other. We are all together inviting all of us Iranians around the world to be together and united as well. Um, So the the group includes Nasi Ali Najad, Reza Pahlavi, the former crown prince of Iran, Hamed Esmailion, I sometimes have a hard time with the last name, who was the, uh, he's the Association of Families of Flight, PS752, the spokesperson for that, and who's done so much work there. Nazanin Bonyadi, who's a um, human rights activist. Uh, Abdullah Mohtadi, who represents the Kurdish Iranians. And I think that was also very important. 
um, having him there, one, the, the Kurdish Iranians have experienced lots of persecution and, um, and have been hurt so much so often, of course, Mahsa Amini herself what was Kurdish, and to see that sign of, of unity. And as he said, um, Abdullah Muhtadi said, for decades the Islamic Republic narrated a false account of Kurdish people, but in a few weeks the lies of the regime were exposed and Kurdistan turned into a symbol of unity, which I think is beautiful. And they said, we need to remain united. Our only common enemy is the Islamic Republic. Also, um, Nobel Peace Prize laureate Shirin Ebadi and Golshifta Farahani is also um, part of this as well. I'm not sure if Ali Karimi was part of the the group, or I think he was not present. A few people were there um, via internet. I think four of them were there in person. But clearly, we're we're seeing some movement in the direction towards having some central force moving forward kind of like a tip of the arrow and i've seen some people saying well if you support this group um and, and i say this because i think as i said the main goal here seemed to be very clearly unity which is what we're going to need it's hard enough to move a heavy object it's practically impossible if we're pushing against each other or um, pushing each other down in the process so to have this revolution happen, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult because the power is in the hands of the people who um, we're trying to get rid of being in power. And so, of course, if we're not unified, well, we won't have a chance. So it's so important for us to stay unified. And it's something that's going to be a challenge of who's going to be the leader because people are afraid of supporting one person or not supporting this person or they might have a preference of who's going to be in power and so i've already seen some comments and things about well does that make you a monarchist if you support this group does that mean you want to go back to a monarchy because um, Reza Pahlavi is on this in this group on this committee but of course it doesn't have to mean that at all you are supporting as they said we are against the islamic regime they're not saying so-and-so will be in power or going to a specific type of government. Uh, a lot will have to be figured out post-revolution and around that time, but we can't get too attached to thinking that if we support someone who has some kind of idea, we're supporting something all the way to its extreme. So um, I didn't, again, hear the full comments to be able to say how it was expressed, but to me it seems very clear. If they're just trying to promote unity, they're not saying uh, anyone of this group, for example, is going to be in power, but they're trying to show a sign of very clear unity and, and togetherness to bring us forward in this movement that we likely will need some level of organization to get to where we want to go. So I think this is wonderful. This is beautiful. Um, and we can stand behind this. And I hope we all will stand behind this doesn't mean you agree with every part of everything these people have said that doesn't exist for for anyone you might like one of them not like one of them whatever it is i hope we can again remember our focus is that we are against the islamic republic we're not pro this one person uh, to to say you're only about them you're about defeating a common enemy which we all have so um, I was very happy to see this, and I think it's it's great that they came together. As I said, I'll, 
I think on Monday's show I will talk about it in more detail after I get to hear the full remarks and to see the event. But from what I've heard, people were very happy with it. So um, happy to hear this is happening, and I hope you all will continue your support in whatever ways that you can. Uh, not all of us will be people that are going to join something like this as far as these individuals, but what can you do that is your part? And one thing very clearly we can do is to show up tomorrow. I think also sharing these messages and these voices to show this unity that we have, that we are unified in what we are doing is very, very important. Um, but we all have a responsibility and it's up to each of us to ask ourselves, what can we do? How can we further what is going on? And so I was yeah, very, very happy to see this and I'm excited to see what is in this solidarity charter that they will release. Um, it is, I'm sure they feel some pressure to make sure it's, it's strong, but also keeping everyone included uh, so that we're all staying united. I know some people have some strong preferences about certain things, but as I said, don't be fixated on certain aspects of it that you're afraid if one person in that group you might disagree with that you, you should disagree or not support this fully. Um, I think I actually think this is great timing because I think people will be even more inspired tomorrow to go to the protest seeing this sign of unity will inspire further unity and further uh, motivate and inspire people to to go out there and to be in the streets and to continue what is happening. We are in February now and and this uprising started in September. So it's it's going on half a year that it's been happening and we knew that likely it was going to be a marathon, not a sprint. It wasn't something that was going to be over quickly. I, I heard, and I still hear some accounts, people saying, oh, I think it's going to end by next week or by this time. And of course, the truth is no one knows. Um, but we do have pretty good understanding from past history and understandings of what's going on here that it likely does take some time as it already has. But I really hope we don't get discouraged by the fact that it's taken a few months already in the grand scheme of how history moves and these types of things happen it still hasn't been that long so i hope you won't be discouraged i think this is very encouraging what we saw today seeing something a coalition and things coalescing uh, to a certain degree which will push things forward but i encourage all of us not to be discouraged i can't know what the result is so i'm not saying i know that things will change but i do know that we will greatly regret if we did not do everything we can to help make this happen. So we have to stay motivated. We have to make sure we're okay, make sure that people around you are motivated and okay. Do whatever it is that you can to push things forward. We can be creative, we can do lots of things, but we have to keep going. We can't give up. And I hope to, to see you there tomorrow. And I'm so proud of seeing the Iranians coming together for a common goal that is about human rights, about people having their freedom, about ending gender apartheid in Iran and giving full rights to to women and to all of the minorities who have been persecuted and who have been suffering. Um, that's what it's all about. So hope to see you there tomorrow, February 11th. I will definitely be there and already talked to some friends. We are very excited to be going and to be there. And one thing I'll say about posting things even you know i always have some hesitancy about posting things on social media how does it come off are you 
trying to get attention or show something or people might misinterpret what your intention is. And so sometimes we can feel like, okay, I shouldn't be posting on social media because it looks a certain way. But if you're at the protests tomorrow, I really hope you'll post yourself there and post the people there. So it doesn't have to be just of you, but especially of the people that are gathered there. We need people to see uh, all of us who are out there in the streets and how many of us are out there in the streets. So they see how much we are united, how many of us care and we still care and want to make this happen. So see you there tomorrow, but also very proud of um, our Iranian brothers and sisters who are creating this coalition. We will anxiously be waiting to see what they release and what they continue to do as we join together against this common enemy of getting the Islamic Republic out of Iran, but also bringing ourselves together to create a new Iran. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, Sometimes it's hard to, to change gears talking about something as important as what's happening in Iran, uh, but I, I really have to at times talk about other things on the show as well. Um, so I will will make the awkward transition, which I might have made even more awkward with, with this introduction. Uh, but coming up in the next few days, Valentine's Day is coming up in the United States here. And so I'm not here to talk about Valentine's Day, but about our relationships and romantic relationships in particular. And when Valentine's Day comes around, it can feel like a lot of pressure for, for people, pressure of what to do. Um, as for if they are in a relationship, they feel a pressure of getting the right gifts or reservations or making it romantic enough or that they have to have a very romantic night. And then for people who are not in a relationship, they can feel like they should feel bad that they're not in a relationship on this romantic night and this day that's supposed to be about love and being in a relationship. And so something I always think about when Valentine's Day comes around is how it does affect people and and how they feel, but uh, especially how we can judge other people's relationships or how we think we should look at relationships and especially how people look at relationships online. So um, we can all be ready on Tuesday to see things on your feed of look at the flowers I got or the this I got or this I did or a picture of us at a certain place and people can have certain feelings about that of envy or uh, maybe jealousy or whatever they might feel that they wish they had this or they think it's it's something important that they should have and so what I always try to remind people and this even with clients this comes up around Valentine's Day those feelings can come of if they're not in a relationship they are in a relationship um, when we look at people's relationships we don't know what that relationship is like you just can't know and when people at times are trying to make what they think is a good relationship unfortunately this always was the case that people wanted to look good and have the relationship look good to other people but even more amplified with social media is that we try to have a quote-unquote relationship goals hashtag couple goals or relationship goals where your relationship looks good to other people or people see a picture like oh that's that's the relationship I want but the truth is that a relationship cannot be measured or should not be measured by how it looks to other people on the outside a relationship should be measured by how it feels to the people who are in the relationship 
And that's something that you can't capture in a picture or a video. Even if you see people smiling in the picture, um, it doesn't tell you what the relationship is like. Not to say don't believe that smile, but just to realize that you don't know what's going on. You know, I always remember when people would break up, people would say, well, they looked so happy. Well, it's like, yeah, well, people uh, post pictures of themselves smiling on vacation, not in the middle of a fight. Uh, when they were having a bad argument, they don't post that picture or video online. So you don't really know. You just see those glossy pictures of them smiling and happy. We don't know what's actually going on. And so the reason I say this is, one, as you're seeing these things online, to just be mindful of that. And of course, it's not just on Valentine's Day. It's on every day that a good life can't be measured by how it looks in a picture or a video. It's what the person themselves is experiencing that matters or what makes a life good or not good or whatever it can be. But when we're looking at our relationships, the same thing. And why this can be so important is, of course, our reactions first to seeing things, but then also what we try to create in our own lives. Because if I'm seeing that as relationship goals, these two people looking uh, good or looking this way or doing something cute or being in front of some landmark, whatever it is that I think I'm supposed to be striving towards, well, then I'm going to try to work towards that. And so often we, we see this in, in life also, that we are trying to create something or we think we're supposed to create something to make us happy, to make us feel good, but it's not the things that make us feel good. So we think if we make a lot of money and we get famous, then we're going to be happy because that's what we see is that the people who are we should try to be like are these celebrities or now influencers who kind of get famous for being famous. That's what we should be striving towards. If I have these many followers, if I have this much money, I'm going to feel really good. Look how good their life is because of how good it looks. So unfortunately, what ends up happening is that most people don't reach this goal that they now think they're supposed to have for themselves, that if I make this much money, I get this famous, then I'm going to be happy. So most people don't get there. And so if they don't get there, they feel bad. They feel like, oh, I'm a loser. I didn't make it there. Look at me. I'm here. Look at them. They're over there. And the comparison makes us feel really bad and makes us feel like a failure. So that's going to be what most people experience because most people don't become very famous. It's by definition, most people can't be very famous. It has to be a limited type of thing. Um, and most people won't be extremely wealthy. Something else we might think will make us happy. So most of us will feel that way. And then a different type of pain is waiting for the people that do get there who then recognize that they're not happy or they don't feel happy because often what these people will feel and you hear so many stories like this that i then became so famous or the thing i always wanted to do making the money i wanted achieving the kind of success i thought i was looking for that would make me happy and i still wasn't happy and so it makes me feel gosh what's wrong with me if i got everything i wanted everything I think you can need to be happy and I'm still unhappy, what's wrong with me? I must be really, really messed up. And you see this even in smaller degrees too. It doesn't have to be just someone who becomes extremely wealthy or extremely famous. Even people who achieve smaller goals or who uh, 
achieve something that they were striving for, they thought it would make them happy, or they have a, a good amount of money or a good amount of these things and they're not happy, they can feel really, really bad about themselves because they can't understand. I have what was supposed to make me happy and I'm not happy. What's wrong with me? And that's because what's going to make us happy isn't those things. What's going to make you feel good about yourself and feel good about your life on a daily basis, not just a quick, nice feeling or a quick change that makes us feel good, are things that are more lasting, like the relationships we have and the quality of those relationships, the ways we're living our life and how good that makes us feel about who we're being and how we're being in our life. These types of things, these values, are the things that will make you feel good and make you feel content about your life. But if we go a different direction, it's like having a recipe and trying to get a certain result. If you have the wrong recipe, even if you do that recipe exactly perfectly, you won't end up happy. You won't end up feeling good. Just like if I give you a recipe for a cake, but the ingredients are actually for making something completely different, you'll end up with something else and think something is wrong with you because you have this recipe. So unfortunately, we have to realize that we usually have the recipe wrong, not that we did it wrong. And so as I said, one of the things that does make us happy long term in a more fulfilled and genuine way are, is the quality of our relationships. So bringing it back to Valentine's Day and, and what people are looking for in their relationships, we have to be so careful not to get pulled into this concept of what a relationship should be because of what other people are looking for or we think we're supposed to look for and make in our relationships. If you look for a relationship that looks good online, you will have lots of likes, but you won't like your relationship. And that's what we need to focus on. Come back towards the inside. Unfortunately, one of the things that has happened with social media is it's done some good things, but it's also exaggerated some very bad things. And of course, we always compared and we always cared about what other people thought. We see this in the, the Persian culture. We were doing it before social media being so mindful of how people see us, see our lives, see what we look like, see our mental health, so many things that we tried to fake or make seem a certain way. We were doing that before social media, but unfortunately social media has put that on steroids and amplified this. So now we are so hyper-focused on how people see us. So how will people judge my relationship and who I'm with? They'll think, oh, I got this guy or this girl and think I'm amazing or I'm good or I have the best life ever. And we focus on that. And unfortunately, that's going to leave us with the wrong types of relationships. We're striving for the wrong things. So, yes, I've seen videos and I think that looks cute or sweet or you see a couple doing something. And it's not to say those things aren't nice and can't even be really good and might be part of a healthy relationship or a happy relationship. But I also know that I can't know what it's actually like to be there, to be in that relationship. I never know what those people are feeling. And that's also why if people uh, get a divorce or they break up or you find out that one of them initiated the breakup or the divorce, it's very easy for us to think, what was, what was that person thinking? How could she do that? How could he leave him? Look how amazing that person is that person was stupid and then we come up with all sorts of theories oh they did it because of this or you know this happened they're ungrateful a million things but just like we can't judge the relationship when it's 
someone else's relationship when we're on the outside. We also don't know what it's like to be in a relationship with a certain person. Just because a person is very good on paper and the things that we tend to think of uh, for as a romantic partner doesn't mean they actually treat the partner in a way that feels good and makes them feel good. We have no idea what's going on inside their relationship behind closed doors when it's just the two of them and how they interact. So we never want to judge a relationship good or bad or judge a relationship that they should have been together or shouldn't have been or this person was stupid to leave this person because we don't know what it's like. And so also learning from that, we can see that the things that will make us happy in a relationship, of course we need to have sexual attraction and for that to be there. So it's not to say don't look at appearance at all. You of course need to have that and it's very important to have that. But to realize that the things that are going to make you feel good in a long-term relationship will be how that person is treating you in ways that people won't see, not just in grand gestures or in a nice gift that you can post on social media. You'll see that a lot, like, oh, look how lucky he is or she is because they bought them this thing. Yeah, those nice you know, gifts can be a good, uh, quick, nice feeling, but it's not going to make you feel good in the long term, just like buying yourself things is not going to make you happy. Someone else buying it for you won't make you happy long term either. It's going to be how they treat you day to day, which we won't be able to see in a post because it's every day. It's all the time. doesn't mean you're always going to be perfect, always treating that person perfectly, but it means overall and overwhelmingly treating them in a way that's kind, respectful, loving, and makes them feel good. And that's not something that anyone can put in a picture or in a video, or even they can tell you, but we don't really know. Not to assume that people are lying, but also to recognize that if celebrities are telling us something about their relationship, it's not just about telling us about their relationship. There's a lot more that goes into it than that. So we have to make sure we have the values right, because those values become like the recipe that we use to make or get the result we're trying to get to. And if we have the wrong ingredients and if we go about it the wrong way, we can never end up with the thing that we are looking for. If you're looking for a healthy and a happy relationship, you're not going to see it by looking at pictures or videos that are one minute long or 20 seconds long of a relationship and think, I should have that. That's not going to be what you should be looking for. What you need is the feeling that you get from your partner and the feeling you have for your partner and the ways that you interact that won't be able to be seen in a picture or a video. So couple goals, relationship goals, whatever you decide to do or not do on Valentine's Day, that's fine. And another note on that, um, I don't think it's anything wrong with celebrating Valentine's Day and being with your loved one and making it special if that's what you both want. But that's not the only time to be romantic. And if it's that one time a year, then you already have some big trouble if that's the only time you're sharing that type of love with each other. So you can have Valentine's Day, but to me, Valentine's Day should be something that comes about often in your relationship as far as having a romantic night where it's not about just the gifts and things, but how you show love to one another and show that kind of care. So whatever you decide to do or don't do, that's that's fine. But I hope you'll make sure what you are striving for when it comes to your romantic life and your romantic relationship isn't based on how it is perceived and how it's seen by others. And nothing that will make a relationship happy is the things that will show up in a picture or video, but things that reflect how you feel in the relationship and how you feel about one another. Let's go to another commercial break. 
We'll be right back. Welcome back. I was talking about um, Valentine's Day relationships in the last segment and um, wanted to share some more thoughts on certain aspects of relationships. One very important one, and it sounds pretty obvious, but it's to be, to have a good relationship, we have to be open and honest with our partners. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But the thing is, like many aspects of life, it's very easy to say, but can be hard to do or even hard to recognize when we're doing it or we're not doing it. Because people might think, well, I might not lie to my partner. So that's one level of uh, of being honest. We don't want to lie to our partner. But another aspect that makes a relationship very, uh, can make a relationship healthy and happier, is necessary to make it a healthy, happy relationship, is that we have to be open about more things than just not lying. We have to go a little bit deeper than just telling the truth and being more vulnerable and open with our partner. And that includes, of course, things about ourselves and our past and things of that sort. But I'm also thinking about sharing things in our day-to-day experience with our partner that might not be so pleasant. Meaning that, let's say we're upset, hurt, having a negative feeling with our partner, we might not think we should share it. And we might think it's because of how good we are. Um, I've heard so many people, they talk about they're such a good partner because they were so patient. They never told their partner about something they were doing that bothered them. You know, for 10 years, they were doing this thing I didn't like. And I never one time told her or told him that it, it was bothering me or upsetting me. And we can understand this perspective that it seems like a good thing to withstand a challenge or a difficulty in what seems like in service of our partner. But in order to be a good partner and to be in a good relationship, we would have to do the opposite. Let the person know the first time that something is bothering us, that something is upsetting us. And so in working with couples in therapy, I've seen this come up before. So of course, um, we can have unhealthy things in a relationship like toxic arguments and and being disrespectful and hurting one another. There's these negative things that we don't want to have. But there's also sometimes a lack of positive things that can hurt the relationship as well. And so one of the things I've seen with some couples is they might not have these bad fights and things, and that's good. But there's a lack of depth in their relationship because they are almost afraid to um, upset or insult or negatively impact their partner. So everything becomes about being good in the moment, kind of like an instant gratification or an instant satisfaction of things are okay, making us afraid to to risk saying something that might be uncomfortable. And so um, this is related to things like being nice or being a people pleaser. And something that I've recognized is that people pleaser sounds like something very pleasant sounds like it's something very good if you make people feel pleased or feel pleasant that sounds nice however um, paradoxically being a people pleaser or people pleasers are not pleasant people to be in a relationship with if someone is a people pleaser it is actually not easy to be in a relationship with them in a deep relationship a people pleaser might be 
easy in a social situation that's more casual and brief, but in a deeper long-term type of a relationship, they actually will be very difficult to be in a relationship with. And what can be hard for people who are people pleasers is that what they've learned their whole life is that as long as I don't upset people, they won't leave. Or as long as I do what they like and what they want, I get to have them around or be there, or at least they'll like me if I am always doing what they like. So more than likely in their childhood, they had parents or family members who didn't give them the space to have their own reality that was different from others, or let's say even show certain feelings that they didn't like or disagree with them. And so they learned that the safer route, the better route is to just be agreeable. Okay. If people don't like something, I don't like it too. If they say they want to do something, I just say, okay, let's do that too. Yeah, I like that. Actually, I like that. Make it seem like I even want to do that thing. And it it gets reinforced because people will often respond very favorably, especially in the short term to that way. Oh, I want it this way. You do too. Good. I like this. Are you okay with that? Yeah. It's obviously going to make things go more smoothly. But then when you actually want to get to know someone or get close to someone, it's a very, very difficult thing. And it actually can start to get frustrating for partners in these types of relationships. Because if I don't share with you when I'm upset, and what often happens is resentment builds, and then I might express it passive aggressively, or I might express it way later and blow up because I've been holding it in for so long. So you start to recognize that it's not that I'm always okay when I tell you I'm okay. Sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. So a people pleaser actually puts the pressure on their partner to become a mind reader. You have to know or try to guess when I'm upset. Or you have to try to guess what might make me upset and not do those things. And so you can feel very paralyzed or feel like you're walking on eggshells. So it can seem paradoxical because if we think of a people pleaser, it seems so pleasant, has the word pleasing in it, but the person who's with that person becomes actually very tense and very uncomfortable because they don't know what's going on. Let's contrast that with someone who tells you exactly how they feel. If they don't like something, you know they're going to tell you. Do you want to do this? Actually, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not in the mood. Now that creates a sense of tension or conflict in that moment, but at least you have that clarity to know that if I ask them, I'm going to get that genuine response that will let me know where they stand and where we stand. So I won't have to think, well, maybe they didn't want me to do that thing, but they just said yes. So I have to think and say no myself. We know what they're telling us is accurate. So we might think we're being easier or better by not sharing what we don't like, but we're actually hurting our partner and hurting the relationship in the long term when we don't actually share what we are going through. We're not letting them actually be with us. They're being with just this surface version of us that's trying to make everything okay. So I've worked with couples and trying to get them to see that when you share something that bothers you to your partner, if your intention is good, You're not doing it to hurt their feelings, but you're actually doing it because you love them and you love your relationship so much that you, one, don't want a negative thing to sit there between the two of you, 
But two, you want to have the type of relationship where you're open and honest with each other in a way that allows for there to be a deeper emotional intimacy and connection. And of course, when we hear a deep emotional connection, we tend to just think of it in that nice feeling way that I'm with you and I feel close and I feel comfortable. And of course, that's what the result is. But the way you get there is through having these uncomfortable conversations or having the space for the uncomfortable conversations. It doesn't mean you're always going to disagree or always going to have something negative to say, but it means that you know that we will have space for it if and when and really when uh, it comes up because it will come up. Can we have that space to go there and say, you know, I didn't like something and trust that we can have the conversation and trust that we can tolerate the tension, the conflict or whatever might come up. And so here we also get to such an important point for parents to recognize with their children. Because if we tend to have this mentality, we we use it with our kids as well to think that disagreement is bad, bad feelings are bad. Let's keep things good all the time. Let's make sure everyone's feeling good, everyone's happy, no one's upset, because upset is not good and isn't happy better than sad. So let's always go in that direction. So unfortunately, what parents often do is they create this type of environment where the kids can feel like conflict is something really negative and really bad. If you don't like someone, that means the relationship ends. Or if you disagree with someone, that means maybe you don't see them anymore. But we want to show our kids that we will disagree in this family because that's part of being human and being in relationships and that they're not that bad. They're okay. But what I've seen is that families tend to teach their kids that conflicts are really scary things. If you get into an argument, it's really bad. One is that we avoid the conflicts, and two, because we avoid the conflicts, when they finally come up, they tend to be very ugly. If you hold things in, hold things in, and you finally let it out, when you finally let it out, it usually means it's going to come out in a pretty ugly way. And what does that do? That just teaches us that look how bad conflict is. Look how scary it is. So unfortunately, it reinforces the mindset and the attitude that it's better to stuff things in and to avoid the conflict because you saw how scary it was that time. So parents can actually do a great service to their kids by showing them healthy conflict. And maybe that seems like an oxymoron that how can conflict be healthy? But it absolutely is because there is always going to be disagreements that exist in any relationship. So if you can show your kids, oh, you know what, I I thought this and your dad thought this, or, you know, I disagree even with you, and let's talk about it. And giving your kids space to disagree with you, that is so important. Some parental mindsets and people's way of thinking is that, you know, the kids should always respect the parents and the parent is always right and you should never disagree with them and have this type of authoritarian type of relationship with your children. And I completely disagree with that teach your kids that they can disagree with you. Both sides will express their disagreement with respect and care and love, but you can very clearly disagree and express that to even your parent. If you think something I'm saying doesn't make sense, you can let me know. If you don't agree with something I'm saying, you can let me know. Something I've seen parents do is that they'll want their kids to stand up for themselves. They'll want them to never let someone take advantage of them or to bully them in any type of way or to push them in some way. But when we look at what they do in the home, are they giving them that space to stand up for themselves? 
So we can't expect our kid to go tell the teacher, I didn't like what you said, or I think that's unfair, if we don't give them that same opportunity to tell us that at home, that they can tell you, oh, that was unfair, I don't like what you did. We have to give them that space. So modeling healthy conflict in the home is really critical in teaching our kids that one, conflict is not this scary thing that should be avoided at any price. Two, conflicts can get worked through quite well and it maybe feels uncomfortable at moments but we get through it okay and three if you do those things correctly that actually the afterwards of a conflict if it's resolved can feel really good and you feel even closer you feel like you got to express yourself hopefully you feel understood you feel like you understand the other person even better because they shared what they were really feeling what was going on for them and now you feel even closer to them and Hopefully you've had this experience of having a conflict and experiencing that closeness that comes afterwards. Um, sometimes you feel this tension. Should I, uh, should I say something? This person did something I didn't like. I don't know how to tell them. And we might avoid it, even sometimes avoid it for weeks or months. But eventually you might get the courage and that vulnerable step is taken to share what you were feeling with that person. And now I'm not here to tell you every time you tell someone something, it goes well. It often doesn't. So there's a reason why we're afraid of conflict is that it can go bad. I'm not here to tell you conflicts can't go wrong. Of course they can. And so we do have to be mindful of who we're having the conflict with. But still, hopefully we can take the risks at times to see what happens with this person and not hold it in. And oftentimes people will respond favorably. Or maybe at first they're a little bit taken aback or they don't like it. And that first conversation might not even go so well because they might get defensive because they weren't expecting this. But give them some space and hopefully they'll come back to you and you can have a better conversation where you both learn and recognize what was going on and get to a better place. Because if we come back to the romantic relationship realm, the only way we can have a good relationship is one where both people can express themselves. If you never fight, that's not a good thing because that means you're not expressing yourself. If you never argue, never disagree, that only means that one or both of you is not telling the truth because it's not possible that you never disagree. Two human beings will have different ex perspectives, different experiences, different wants, and that will show up in the course of their time together. So we have to express that. So when you look at your relationship, of course, you want to make sure there aren't these unhealthy things toxic concepts or to toxic components to it absolutely but you can also ask yourself how strong is the foundation of our relationship when it comes to the emotional intimacy and the openness that we have do we have the type of relationship where we can both be open and honest have we created that type of culture in our relationship where we prize honesty and openness over avoiding conflict over just keeping the peace in every moment do we prefer that openness over just avoiding conflict? And I encourage you to go towards that kind of relationship because one, it'll make it stronger so it can withstand more, but two, it will feel even better and more meaningful if you can create that type of emotional intimacy. So it's not about not fighting. It's about how you fight or argue or disagree and express yourself. And if you have that space to express yourself as well. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You know, there's a lot of 
sayings that we we use and and misuse. And actually, I wanted to talk about one of the ones that often does get misused, which is it's the thought that counts. And it does have actually a good, um, as these sayings do, can have a lot of value and meaning to it. But it has a lot of um, misvalue, or I don't know, I think that's even a word. I'm talking about using things wrongly. Um, but when we use it incorrectly. So people will sometimes say, you know, I wanted to get you something um, for your birthday, and then I didn't. It's like, well, it's a thought that counts. It was like, no, that's not actually what we mean by that. Really, when we say it's the thought that counts, we mean it's the intention that counts. Not that just if you thought about it, it's equal to doing it, or that's what matters. If you go by a child drowning and you think about saving them, you can't say, well, I thought about it. I, I pretty much did everything I can. The thought really has no value. It really reminds me of when we say um, in America, sadly, we very often have to deal with the aftermath of, of shootings and what we will get mad at politicians when they say thoughts and prayers, when they could actually do something about it and they're not taking action. We don't want your thoughts and prayers. We want action. And so in less dramatic ways than what we're talking about there, when we use it day to day, we often will not realize that really what we mean, it's the intention that counts is when people say it's a thought that counts. So let me give you an example. Um, you are uh, coming back from a trip and I'm coming with my friend to pick you up. I don't really know you that well, but I say, well, let me bring him um, this drink. And so I bring you this kind of smoothie and it has a bunch of fruits in it. Now, we get there and we come to pick you up and I give you this smoothie and then you say what's in it and I tell you the things in it and one of the things is bananas and you say, oh, I'm actually allergic to bananas. But you could say, oh, that's so kind of you. It's the thought that counts. I can't drink this, so I won't be able to have this. But it's the thought that counts. So here it's the intention. You thought to get me something. That was your intention. You went through the steps to get me that thing and then now you bring it to me. I can't have it, but it is the thought that counts there because you didn't know. But if I just said, oh, I wanted to bring you something, but I didn't, I, the thought doesn't count. It doesn't matter. And so in our life, we have to be aware of this too, that sometimes people will say they hurt someone or they don't do things for them or whatever it might be, but, but you don't know how much I love you, how much I, I care about you. And that can sound really nice, but really if the love does not translate into a way of being or actions that are taken, we can't say that the love is enough. So a parent might say, oh, you know, I, I didn't do this for my kids, but I love them so much. Well, what's going to affect your kids is what you actually do, not just some feeling that exists in your head. That's for you, whatever you feel for them. And if it stays there, that's just for you to feel and experience. But what they need to do is to feel your love through the things that you do. So we have to be careful not to get caught up in the thinking that, well, it's the thought that counts. So because of that, if I think about something or if I um, care about someone in my heart and in my mind, that's what's going to be, that's going to make the difference. And I see this in romantic relationships as well. People think, well, oh, I just, I would do anything. You know, you, you hear these things. I would do anything for my partner. I was like, well, what are you doing or, or not doing? You can't just say it as if, yes, if push came to shove, it was life or death, you would sacrifice for them. That's good. 
that sounds nice. Hopefully we won't have to get to the point where you have to prove that that's true or not. But what are you showing them in a day-to-day basis that is actually a expression of that love? And relates to what I was saying before too about looking at relationship goals and things and sometimes people think these big gifts and these gestures, that's what makes love and romance when it really isn't. Those things can be nice, but they're kind of like a penthouse or something on the top floor. If there's no foundation, it has no value. It's just going to collapse and, and come to the ground. It has to be on top of a foundation of things that are built every day. Uh, John Gottman, who's done decades of research on relationships and finding what makes them work, what makes them not work, what leads to divorce, what leads to healthy and strong relationships, he talks about these little things, these small actions that make or break or really that make a relationship strong. Um, I think he calls it turning towards your partner, making these bids where you make small steps towards your partner. That's what creates a good and strong relationship, not necessarily these huge moments, because it's those small relationships that are happening every day that are like these small bricks, building that foundation and building that strong building and structure that is your relationship. So if you say you care about your partner, it's something that they should be able to feel every single day. And really, when we think about, I love my partner, and you say that, what was more important is not, do you love your partner and say it internally, do they feel that love is what's going to matter? Do they feel loved by you? Because If they don't, then your love is not achieving its purpose, which is to be expressed and felt by that person. Even more, we can see this with our kids. If you say, I'll do anything for my kids, well, and I love my kids so much, that's a good feeling to have. But we have to ask your kids, do you feel loved by your mother or your father? Do you feel loved by them? How much do you feel loved by them? And so it doesn't matter if the parent says, oh, I no, you don't know. I would do anything for these kids. I love them so much. Okay, well, if you do anything for these kids, if they're not feeling it, if they don't feel loved by you, well, then apparently you won't do anything for them because you're not finding the way to make them feel loved, to feel that you love them. It's not the thought that counts. It's not the feeling that counts. It's the action that counts. And in this sense, it's the feeling of the person that's receiving that love that counts. Do they feel loved by you? Do they feel that you you care about them? And... Um, in a relationship we can also see various ways that this shows up even in how we interact so looking at this in a a very different way something that's important to have in a relationship is a sense of playfulness of fun and joy that you have and some of that is also spontaneous so you can't just plan it of course you want to set aside time to have fun and play but the play should also be something that goes throughout the relationship that you could even joke and and play and tease with each other. But one of the things that can happen in in a relationship, happens in all types of interactions, is we make a joke and we think it's fun or funny, but the other person takes offense to it and they don't like it. And so we might think, well, my intention is just to be fun and playful, which is, is good for a relationship, so you have to like it. But really, we have to be aware that a joke is only a joke if both the teller and the recipient feels it's a joke and enjoys that. But at times I've seen couples where 
one or both of them might use humor to express some type of anger towards their partner or to put them down. And so we know that humor is very valuable and can be very beneficial to relationships, also just to life in general. But we also can use it as a defense or a veiled way to express something else. So um, the clearest way we can see this is kids making fun of their parents. And I think in every um, generation and every culture, especially children of immigrants, the parents make fun of their kids for lots of things. But one of the things is, for example, how they talk. Oh, you have an accent or you say the wrong words and they like to make fun of them and tease them. And so, of course, this is a way for the children to express some type of anger to also try to bring their parents down a little bit in a way to make themselves feel good in this power differential or that power dynamic. They tease them in a way, and it could be playful. I'm not saying any time a joke is made, it's, it's nefarious and has a bad intention. But there is a way that this is used rather than saying, I I'm upset with you or I don't like something in the dynamic. We, through humor, can express this type of anger or a way of putting them down. And so similarly, in a relationship, you might be doing that with your partner. And I've even seen it in therapy sessions that the couple, one of them will make a joke in the session and the partner doesn't like it and say, oh, you're just sensitive. It's a joke, so you have to be okay with my joke. But hopefully we can take a step back. First, look at your own intention. Could you be expressing some anger towards them? Most people, their initial reaction is, no, no, I'm just making a joke. I'm having fun. But oftentimes if we think about it, we'll recognize, you know what, I think there was something behind my joke. I've even seen with my own parents, I've done the thing I was talking about before, expressing some type of anger in a way, and you make it in a joke, and it's just supposed to be fun or playful, but really there's something to it, there's something there. So it is very important to ask yourself, what, what is my joke, where is it coming from? Why would I make this type of a joke with my partner? And very importantly, if they're telling you it hurts, why would you keep repeating it? Or why would you say it more than once if they're telling you something hurts them? And so people then can get into this conversation of, well, are they being sensitive or is a joke actually bad? And as is often the case, we get focused on blame or figuring out who is right or wrong in this. Was it actually bad or are you sensitive? And I think that conversation won't get you to where you really want to get to, which is actually understanding each other and what you're going through. If you bump your partner and they say it hurts, now, does it matter so much? Is it because they have a bruise there or you hit them in a hard way? Yeah, it could be good to understand them. But if they're hurting, I would hope your first reaction is, oh, I, I did something that hurt my partner. Doesn't mean you have to beat yourself up either and be really hard on yourself, but at least acknowledge that you've done something that hurt them and to take their pain as being real and being important. So a joke is only a joke if both people in the relationship take it as a joke and take it lightly. If someone doesn't like it, then you're actually doing something quite different. It's not actually about making it fun and having a good time with them. It's about hurting them in some way, whether it's intentional, it's passive aggressive, it's a veiled way of getting something in, a, a sting, pushing them down or pulling them down a notch. That's something that you can look at a little more deeply. And if you're open, you might recognize it's one of those things. But hopefully you don't see that as the way of getting closer with them because you're not. 
And I always think that, yes, it's good to be playful and leave space for that. Absolutely. But at the same time, if you can't come up with jokes that don't hurt the person, especially the person you care about, that's actually showing just a lack of creativity and your own sense of humor. If the only way you can have fun with them is in a way that they get hurt, that to me shows there's something missing there that you should be able to have some type of a um, humor with them that isn't hurtful. We sometimes think that humor has to be that way, put someone down, make fun of someone. But some of the highest forms of humor are things that we just recognize the funniness about life or we make an observation that's funny or we joke about something in a way that just points to the lightness or the the peculiarity of things in the world. It doesn't have to be something that puts someone down. But be very aware of the things that you, you say to your partner. Am I saying things that make them feel good? and not saying things that make them feel bad. That's something that you should hopefully take as your responsibility, not to say it's my fault if my partner ever gets hurt, but that I want to make sure what I say is more loving to them. And coming back to this notion of it's the thought that counts, it's important to be in touch with our feelings and our thoughts about things. And when you hear me talk about feelings, it can almost seem like I make them more important than many people might think they are. And the truth is, I think they're very important as information and in understanding ourselves and what we're going through, what's happening, but they're just that information. Now what we do with them is actually what's even more important. So if I'm angry, that is very important, but it doesn't mean because I'm angry, I can do anything and that's okay. The anger is information and then I can use that information with my thinking and rational mind to then make a decision on how I'd like to act. But it's not just the anger that's important. It's what I do that's going to be ultimately the most important. And similarly, the feeling of love is a very important and a, a beautiful one. But if it doesn't translate into action, the feeling itself is not very valuable. It's really only valuable for you if you feel good or it makes you feel good. But you want to make sure your partner feels loved. And so I actually think that as a partner, just like we think of any of our responsibilities in life and the roles that we play, it could be good that when you lay your head down at night, you think, could I have been more loving to my partner today? Or how could I have been more loving to my partner? Not in a way of putting yourself down or thinking you're being bad, but in a way of I'm striving to be better and to be more loving to this person I'm saying I love and I care about. How can I make them feel loved? If they don't feel loved by me, that's on me to share that love with them. And so it's not the thought that counts. It's your actions and your behaviors that count and the way you make them feel ultimately that makes the difference. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So for the last segment of today's show, I wanted to talk about encouraging all of us, myself included, to to face life and to face uh, experiences that might make us anxious, but the only way we can live life is to go into them. And I've talked before about risks, and today even I was talking about creativity, so there can be creative risks. But in this last segment, tying it into some of the other um, topics today, I mean it more in the sense of our relationships. So um, a couple, I think about a year and a half ago, I thought of this concept or this phrase, distant gratification. So you're pro probably all familiar with instant gratification, and this is when we 
choose to do the thing that feels good and usually it's brought up in discussions where we're talking about how you could have done something that was better for you long term but you chose instant gratification to feel good in the moment and that costs you down the line so you have to study for an exam but your friends want to do something or you'd rather play video games or do something fun in the moment you go for that instant gratification but then you pay the price later and of course we always will have a tendency towards this. The reason why we're, we talk about instant gratification and going against it is because it's our default is to do the thing that feels better in the moment. We'll always have a stronger pull than doing the thing that doesn't feel good now, but will be good for us down the line. Um, because the truth is instant gratification isn't all bad. Sometimes you should do the thing that feels good in the moment and indulge and enjoy whatever that is, or it's the time to enjoy it. It doesn't mean that's the wrong thing to do. But so often we get ourselves in trouble by not doing the things that are best for us long term and then paying the price down the line. So that's instant gratification. But what I was thinking of is distant gratification, which is when we enjoy things from afar, things that are distant, because they are safer, easier to idealize, and it protects us against the anxiety or the challenges of the real thing. And in particular, I remember when I was thinking of this concept, it was related to romantic relationships. So this can include things like a long distance relationship or an online relationship, but even things like we hear things like robot boyfriends or girlfriends or partners or virtual partners, where you just are talking with an AI or something and it just responds to you. And one of the things you hear people say is, well, I, I want to have this robot girlfriend because I won't have to have any problems with them. I won't have to face any issues. They won't ever bother me. They say exactly uh, what I want to say or what I want to hear. Who wouldn't want that? And so in a way, yes, in a, in a surface type of way, it sounds nice to have a partner who doesn't say things you don't like or never says anything you don't like and is always available to you in that way. But like most things, when it's not real or when it's not faced with the genuine challenges, it doesn't feel as good. You're not going to feel as good with a partner that is a robot or is um, programmed to be kind to you because you also know that it doesn't feel so good. Uh, to be in a relationship, you have to actually be with someone or for it to feel right is that they can leave you. I think it was actually a Carl Jung quote, or I don't know exactly the quote, but it said that, actually, I don't think it was young. Anyway, the opposite of, of love is not hate or indifference, but control. I think it's really powerful and I should look that up. But the opposite of love is control, because if someone is forced to be with you, then that's not love. There's not a choice to be with you. And this is something we see, unfortunately, in, in some types of marriages, or there's a forced stay, status there. And so if you're forced to be there, that can't be love because you're, you're forced there. You don't have the choice. So if you're going to be in a relationship that will make you feel close and make you feel good, you have to be with someone that can hurt you, disappoint you, leave you, all of those things. It's the only way to have a genuine relationship is to have those things. But if we seek comfort, then we're going to seek something that is what I'm calling distant gratification. Let's just be in a safer space, but you won't experience something very good. 
Um, in the book Can Love Last by Stephen Mitchell, I, I, he introduced this concept to me, and I thought it was really brilliant back in graduate school. It really affected me of understanding relationships in certain ways. And specifically, he talked about how uh, when we talk about Can Love Last, as the title of the book asks us, we tend to think love gets boring, relationships get boring. But he was saying that it gets boring because we assume or we trick ourselves and we lie to ourselves to think we fully know our partners because we want to feel safe. If I know you exactly, there's no surprises. I know exactly what you're going to do, what you're not going to do. You become very boring to me, but you become safe for me. But the reality is, of course, you get to know your partner better. You do know them at some level, but they can never be fully known for you to the point where you think there's nothing new to learn. But I have to also accept there's an unpredictability there. So I have to leave some of that space for that unpredictability, lose some of that safety. But in its place, I get a passion that can last a whole lifetime. The love can continue. The passion can continue. And related to this way of looking at uh, a distant gratification and avoiding the discomforts, he had a very interesting insight about fantasies that I thought was interesting, sexual fantasies. So people often say, well, my sexual fantasy is exciting because anything can happen and it could be, it's crazy, all these things that are going on in a fantasy that I can't have in real life. That's what actually makes it exciting or interesting. But as he pointed out, in a fantasy, although maybe crazy things are happening or you're doing something that seems not possible in reality, you're also controlling every element of what's happening. So it's not that anything can happen because you're controlling what happens in the fantasy in your mind. But even in the most mundane interaction with your partner, you can't predict what is going to happen. There's actually more anxiety in that interaction, more unpredictability, more craziness in that way, because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And that's what we have in a genuine relationship is we don't know exactly. And that's a bit scary to think we don't know. And that's, of course, why we seek this type of control or the distant gratification, because it's scary to be vulnerable and to risk being hurt. It's a very easy concept and one that I've thrown around a lot because it's so true, but can really talk about a lot of things is fear of intimacy. So we can just say, oh, you have a fear of intimacy. But the truth is, I used to say it a lot and I still do, but really when I think about it, that everyone has a fear of intimacy because intimacy is at some level scary. That's what makes it also powerful and valuable, but it's like two sides of a coin that it's something we want so much, but we're also so afraid of because we can get hurt when we achieve and have that type of intimacy. And so very often people are choosing the safety. We can risk intimacy, risk the vulnerability of being very intimate and close with someone, or we can choose to avoid it and find other ways of occupying ourselves. And many people are doing that. They are choosing, avoiding the intimacy and thinking they're happy because they don't want to risk. And so this is not to say everyone has to get married and everyone has to have certain types of relationships. That's not what I'm actually suggesting. But what I'm suggesting is that many people will avoid something they actually do want because of the anxiety. And that's something actually in therapy I, 
I'm often trying to help clients figure out because sometimes they think, okay, maybe I want a new job or this promotion or a different relationship or something in my life. But then they think, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Or they come up with reasons not to. And now it could be that they genuinely shouldn't do that thing or they don't want it. But what I try to help them figure out is, am I not wanting that thing because I don't want it? Or am I not wanting it because I'm actually afraid of it, but I do want it? So, for example, someone has a job and there's a promotion that they really want, but there's also this part of them that doubts themselves. What if I'm not good enough? What if I go there and I'm, I can't handle it and everyone sees that I'm a failure or I'm not as smart as they thought I was or I somehow lose the job? And so because of that, they trick themselves into thinking, oh, I don't even want that job or who wants it? I prefer what I'm doing. This is more fun for me. And they stay put. And so in that case, if it's the anxiety holding them back, I want them to go for it. Can you fail? Yes. Can you, you know, lose the job? All those types of things. They can happen. So we can't say it's not possible, but it seems like you actually want the job, which is very different from actually that's the kind of work that's not fulfilling for me or it's not the kind of work I want to do. That person shouldn't do it. So same thing with relationships. It's not that everyone has to get married and has to have a certain type of relationship. Or even once you're married, you have to have children. You should really want to have children and only do it if you want to have children. But people often avoid both of those things because of the anxiety they have related to it, not because they don't actually want those things. So it's not that they don't want to be married or be close to someone, but because they're afraid of getting hurt, of being vulnerable, of getting close to someone. And then what if something happens, which is all very possible and does happen and can happen, they choose not to go towards the thing that they actually want. And so I'm encouraging everyone listening, myself included, to be aware of those things that we have, those anxieties that we have that hold us back from pursuing the things that we want. And I am choosing that word pursuing very carefully because it's not to guarantee you will have it and it's not to guarantee that you won't be hurt when you go for it. But if it's something that you want, maybe you won't get it, maybe something happens. But one thing we can be sure of is that if you don't go for something you want, you will regret not having that in your life or not going for it and pursuing it in your life. If you want it to be close and have an emotionally intimate relationship and never let it happen or never went for it, you're going to regret not giving yourself that opportunity. And that's something I don't want for any of us to live a life that we regret, to live a life where we regret the things and the opportunities that we didn't even provide ourselves a chance to have. And in relationships, what we often see happen is that people will say, I prefer to be with multiple people, which can be its own way of being in a relationship, let's say, but if we focus on a monogamous relationship, they might even choose to date many people their whole life and never commit to one person. And it seems like, isn't this more fun? Am I not having a better time? And even if it could seem stronger in some ways, I'm with multiple people. But what we often find is that that person, it's not that they want to be with multiple people, but they are actually afraid of giving their heart to one person. Because when we do that, we can get hurt by that person, by what they do, or if something happens to them or something happens to the relationship. So there is this anxiety of what can happen and there is a genuine risk. So I encourage people to go into their vulnerability, not because they can't get hurt, 
by definition, when you're vulnerable, you can get hurt. But because it's going towards the things that they actually want in a deeper level, that they would strive towards in their ideal life, and if that's the case, that's something that I would hope they go for and go towards. So life is scary. Relationships can be scary. It's unknown. It's unpredictable. If you want to control every element of it, then you take away what it is. You can't be in a relationship if there is zero uh, things out of your control or everything is predictable. That's not a relationship. Or you'll create a very boring relationship that you won't even be enjoying or be that much in. We have to take those risks, take those leaps to have the things that, that are valuable and meaningful in life. And having a relationship is the biggest leap we, we have to take. But the only way we could have it is to jump without knowing exactly where you're going to land, but thinking it's worth the risk. We're getting close to the end of the show, and I did want to one more time, um, as I'm wrapping up, remind everyone of the protests that are happening across the world tomorrow, February 11th. If you're here in Los Angeles, it begins at 12 noon at City Hall in downtown Los Angeles. Hope to see you there. I will definitely be there, and I hope to see you there, and looking forward to seeing all the posts around the world of people and all the people who are out sharing their voice to be the voice and amplify the stories of the people of Iran as we continue this movement towards a revolution to change the government there, to make it what the people have wanted for so long. And I hope to see you there tomorrow. Um, please make sure your voice is heard as well. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Walakwi. Zan Zendegi Azati.